Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, our regional roundtable. Politics could put food stamps out of reach for some New Hampshire residents. Will new flights from Rhode Island's TF Green Airport help the state's economy lift off? And a Hyannis man's story may earn Oscar gold. Later in the show, one in 10 Americans is living with a rare disease, some suffering silently with an undiagnosed, untreated, and even unknown illness. On the last day of February, Rare Diseases Day, doctors and advocates promote awareness and research. But first, joining me to talk regional news, Arnie Arneson, host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Hello, Arnie. How are you, Kelly? I'm okay. Paul Pronovo, editor of the Cape Cod Times. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Kelly. And Philip Isle, freelance journalist in Providence, Rhode Island. Hello, Philip. Hi, Kelly. Philip, we're going to start right with you because this story about the bungling of the benefits computer system in Rhode Island is a huge one, effectively messing up the lives of people who are on food stamps, providers who are not getting paid, and a lot of people who are incorrectly, as the story in the Providence Journal notes, denied benefits. This has been rough. The governor has now come out, Governor Gina Romato, and said it's a big mess. But where are we there? Yeah, there's a lot of ground to cover here. I'm going to try to be quick. So back in the previous administration, and it is important to point out that Governor Gina Raimondo's predecessor, Lincoln Chafee, was the one who signed this deal to revamp the website for the public benefits system. It's called the United Health Infrastructure Project, or UHIP. So this has become the UHIP crisis. And one of the big numbers to remember here was this is a $364 million project. Uh, Lincoln Chafee, of course, didn't run for re-election. Governor Gina Raimondo was elected to take his place. She recently passed the halfway point of her tenure, and she's really embroiled now in what has become a pretty significant crisis. This website rolled out in September, and apparently uh, there have been all kinds of problems since. The Providence Journal reports uh, there were immediate headaches, such as three- to four-hour waits at field offices, delayed food assistance, providers not being paid, many residents incorrectly denied benefits. And this thing has just been kind of snowballing ever since. Some of the headlines since September, ABC6, UHIP, governor admits it was a mistake to lay off workers before the launch. Another headline from that month from Channel 10, no immediate changes at DHS despite federal warning. So now some of the facts today, three fairly high-level Raimondo appointees have lost their jobs for this. There was recently a report described by the Providence Journal as blistering that says there are widespread issues with UHIP that have caused significant deterioration in the quality of service provided by the state. That report, which was produced by uh, the Raimondo administration, puts a lot of the blame on Deloitte, who was the contractor 
for this project. The Projo notes that of that $364 million, Deloitte has already received about $200 million. So a lot of this kind of heat is being deflected toward them, but it's just kind of a big mess. I will add that the governor has apologized for this to both the workers at her administration who have been caught up in this and the people who were supposed to receive benefits. I think in the Trump era, it is important to note when people, politicians, do stand in front of cameras and apologize. And as an interesting kind of final note to this, there was an interesting bit of optics when the governor went out to speak at a conference called Girls Who Code in California that happened to be sponsored by Deloitte. And as Governor Chafee noted in a recent interview, the optics of that were not great. She called it, I think, an unbelievable coincidence. And she also said that while she was there, she talked with a Deloitte executive and kind of gave some stern talking. But It's definitely veered the governor off message from things she wants to be talking about, like the jobs she's brought to the state. And she also recently unveiled in her State of the State address a plan to get two years of free tuition for Rhode Islanders. But this is really taking up a lot of the oxygen. You know, Arnie, what you hear these stories about bureaucracy and computer systems, and I just want to bring people back to the point that these are real people's lives that have been messed up and hanging in limbo. These are people living on the edge. They need their assistance. This is crazy. Well, not only is it crazy, but if you read the Providence Journal editorial, they give Ramondo a knuckle sandwich. They said she put people in charge who lack the talent and skills to oversee the massive and expensive project. But this is the part that I think is the most shocking, is that the feds actually told them to hire a consultant. And the consultant kept saying, you haven't tested this yet. You haven't tested enough. You haven't tested enough. But they wanted to say the project is done, that they pulled the trigger. And as you just point out, it is people's lives. These are people that if they're denied benefits, where do they go for food? Where do they go for whatever the welfare benefit is? So it's even a greater extent of the immorality is to not only hire incompetent people, to not only ignore the consultant who's been telling you you haven't tested it, but then look at the consequences. So this is not just about egg on her face, it really is a test of her leadership. I know you have lots of friends. I know you want to give them great perks. I know you want to give them good jobs. But if they're not skilled for the task at hand, then guess what? Look at the people you're harming. And I think this is a lose, 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 not only for her, but for the people that were falling through the cracks as a result. And you know what else, Paul? It occurs to me, I mean, it was odd enough that she was at a Girls Who Code session, but that says to me there should be more women in this and it probably wouldn't have happened. That's just me editorializing. But but beyond that, we are in a New England center that's similar to Silicon Valley in terms of tech. So when something like this happens that falls squarely on a tech issue, Paul, I have to say I just get really frustrated because there's just no reason for it. There's plenty of expertise around here. You know, you're so right, Kelly. There is plenty of expertise, and not just at the coding level, but at the project management level. And Thank and you. as I as I was hearing the story, I I think somewhere out there, former Governor Deval Patrick is quietly shaking his head because here's a story I found from the Boston Globe in 2015. Health Connector Chief promises smoother rollout, huh. and fr- and from the story, when the connector system was upgraded to meet new federal requirements in 2013. New software proved unable to enroll anyone and had to Mm -hmm. be scrapped. The system that was launched a year ago, meaning 2014 at that point, succeeded in enrolling people but often failed to properly process payments, leaving many without coverage even though they had paid. The call center had long wait times and a frustrating inability to solve customers' problems. So this has happened 
just north of Rhode Island in Massachusetts. And you would think you don't want to repeat the lessons of history, particularly in areas where things can be cleaned up. And in Massachusetts, they have been. So you would think that the expertise is literally 30 miles to the north. Yeah. And of course, to add to your point, Paul, there was the Obamacare rollout. Right. And, and that's exactly. I was thinking of that. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Um, exactly. I think one thing I would just add to this, which comes to mind, you know, Governor Raimondo, her mantra is always jobs, jobs, jobs. And that's fine. Rhode Islanders need jobs. She's not the first politician to talk a lot about jobs. But guess what? Being governor isn't only about creating and, and maintaining jobs. It's about other stuff, too, like this. There's a lot of different things involved in being a governor. And I think, you know, this is a reminder that this is one of them. Well, I hope those people are made whole in some way because it's just scary to think about. And I hope the people that, that did it have to look at themselves in the mirror and think about it a little bit longer because it's very serious business. Anyway, moving on to you, Arnie, this food stamp change possibly. So this is a change, a possible change in the eligibility for food stamps mm -hmm. in New mm -hmm. Hampshire. And I have to say, I didn't realize that around the country there are some of the things in, that this bill reflects happening right now. Um, exactly. So talk to us about that, if you would. Well, there's a Florida a nonprofit think tank. I'm not sure what I'd call it. Uh, it's called the Foundation for Government Accountability. And they have been going into states all over the country, and they offer them sort of prepared legislation. So all you have to do is, you know, there's a blank, put New Hampshire. There's a blank, put Massachusetts. And then they'll, you roll out this legislation. And if you look at the legislation that was introduced about food stamps, it is literally lifted from the website word for word with just the name New Hampshire put in. Now, that's one thing. So you know it's kind of a blunt instrument. It's kind of cookie cutter. It doesn't understand the landscape of the state. It doesn't matter because it really isn't about what's good for New Hampshire. It isn't about the food stamp program in New Hampshire. It's really just about denying people benefits. That's really what they're all about. And what is so frightening about this food stamp bill is that who signed on to this legislation, Callie, is the Speaker of the House and the head of the Senate in New Hampshire. Hmm. Now, that means it carries a lot of punch. Then when you realize it's a cookie-cutter piece of legislation that isn't New Hampshire-specific, you start to get nervous. And then we interviewed the legal assistance lawyer that works with this population, and we found out New Hampshire has one of the most sophisticated, brilliant food stamp programs because we're such a, how do I say this, we're cheap, okay? We're <laughs> like a rich state that doesn't tax people, so we don't like to spend a lot of money. And we even realize that while the federal government pays for 100% of food stamps, if we have to pay an extra dime to enroll someone because it's a 50-50 split on enrolling people, not actually providing the food stamps, but just enrolling, we're not going to want to enroll one more person than we need to because it'll cost us an extra 50 cents. So what she did was describe how food stamps works in New Hampshire, and this this bill is not only immoral, but it would cut 17,000 families and their kids off of the food stamp program. It would harm the state because the state would have to pay more money to process the paperwork, leaving lots of food stamp dollars on the table. Then people who suddenly lost their food stamps would go back to local governments, cities and towns, because they couldn't feed their families. And local governments in New Hampshire, there's a welfare law that says, if you have a need, the town must provide. So suddenly towns would have to start writing checks so people could feed their families. So this is a lose, lose, lose. And as I described it the other day on the radio, this is a bad math piece of legislation because there are no winners here. And that was the intent. The intent was to harm people, 
erode the safety net. And there's an interesting piece in this legislation that says if ever in the future there is a additional need, you can never then access food stamps. So it actually looks ahead and says if the current need expands, you can't add to this program. So it's just harmful. It's a hurtful, harmful piece of legislation. And I think what is so sad about all this, after learning this, I suspect the speaker had no idea about our current food stamp program. I think the Senate president had no idea. And isn't it sad they sign on without any knowledge of what actually our state is doing, which really should be a model for the country and not something you try to erode. So let me bring up something else that is tied into this new proposal that the state senator is very much aware of because he said this was one of his reasons. He wanted to tie food stamps. It requires individuals receiving food stamps to pay their child support. And he's concerned because somebody in his family, his daughter, is owed $29,000 in child support hadn't gotten it. And so his feeling is, well, whomever, I guess, the husband or partner should be, should not be eligible for food stamps. He'll get a lot of residents there. My sister has a deadbeat husband. I would cut him off any way I could if I thought it would work. Let me just say. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if that, I mean, it feels like that's somewhat far afield for the essence of this bill and who it uh, mainly affects, yeah. as Arnie, as you've articulated. But that's one thing that'll get resonance with people some who may not be moved by the constant mantra of these people on food steps are buying steaks every day. Well, so you're going to cut off 17,000 people because seven people are not paying their child support. So let's, let's take a look at this in the gestalt and say if there's a problem here, deal with that problem. And let me also say something, not that I'm sensitive or not sensitive to people who aren't paying child support, but when you are at 100% or 130% of the poverty level and you are underemployed or unemployed and you have to pay child support, I don't know where you squeeze from a stone, but the idea is if you're qualifying for food stamps, the likelihood is you're dirt poor, and if you can't pay for food, child support is probably a challenge as well, just to remind everyone. No, that's probably true. This is the political football, Philip, the food stamps. Wherever you go, even without help from this Florida think tank, if you want to stir up the population, just give a hint that somebody's getting away with something. And for whatever reason, the food stamp bill really gets people going. Now, this is, let me just point out, at the same time where food pantries, these are outside of food stamps. So they are supplementing people who get food stamps, right? Food pantries are crying, screaming, yelling, waving their hands to say, What they have seen in the numbers of their populations on the increase is amazing, more than they've seen in a long time. And so it's a real situation is what what I'm getting to. Yeah, I I have a a number of points to make here. One is a shout out to the uh, author of the New Hampshire Public Radio article, Jack Rodilico, I apologize for mispronouncing it, who did just an excellent article on this whole thing. Among other things, he points out, as we always should, that these food stamp stories are about kids. That a third of the people involved are kids. So really, a food stamp story is about hungry kids, and I think we should always emphasize and remember that. Two, the sponsor of this legislation said, quote, and making sure that you don't get a million dollars in a trust fund and you're collecting food stamps. And this excellent reporter pointed out just after Senator Avar then said he didn't have evidence of millionaire trust funders on food stamps, but that it's possible for it to happen. The guy just said that without any evidence, never mind that it was a statistical anomaly. He didn't have any evidence mm. 
So that's important. And then there's, as the article points out, the fact that the New Hampshire Food Bank, which fears it won't be able to feed these families, is opposed to this legislation. So who are we going to believe? The Florida-based think tank who gave the cookie-cutter legislation or the people on the ground who are dealing with this issue, who see what the realities are, who oppose the legislation. I know who I'm leaning toward. And And it's not just the food bank. Let me just say, again, almost every single local welfare officer in every city and town opposes this as well because they understand the consequences. And the consequences are their already strained budgets will just be strained even more. And these are 100 percent federal dollars that pay for food stamps. Can I remind everyone? So you are leaving those people hurt, hungry, and you're not even accessing the money that the feds are putting on the table. That's so horrific. I'd like to add a couple things that, Callie, you you referenced and I want to go back to. One, for some reason, food stamps and transitional assistance is the greatest political football out there. And all you need to do to get people roiled up is to talk about people who are using their food stamps for junk food and, and soda. The last time there was a big push about this, it was trying to restrict that sort of thing. And it's just a target. And yet it is something, a program that is used by the most vulnerable of populations. I mean, we talk about people on the edge today, perhaps more than ever. And without doubt, certainly this and any other program could have examples of abuse. I'm not sure that's always the case. And here's the other point. And Callie referenced the food banks. I'm always fascinated by these sort of franchise legislations where it's cookie cutter and you can plop it down in your community. So I'm always curious where it's been implemented. And of course, this began with the Florida think tank. So I took a peek, did a little research at how it was going in Florida. And guess what? The food pantries in the area of Naples and Fort Myers, which was ground zero for this, saw almost immediately a doubling in requests Mm. for um, the need. And, And what does that tell you? It tells you that the need doesn't go away. You may take away the support, but the need is still there. The food still needs to be consumed. And so people just went and tried as best they could to find another place that could supplement what they needed. And I have to just say in conclusion on this, Even Americans who could find themselves getting roiled up about the thought that somebody has used a food stamp for a steak, someone or two people, I don't know who these people are. The bottom line is that most Americans who are lucky enough to have what they call food security are over there at those food banks in their churches, in their communities, or with their checks, supporting places that feed people they know are hungry in their communities. I mean, that's very real to people. They've seen that with their own eyes. You don't have to convince most people that that exists. So this kind of stuff is just frustrating, because I don't know what the senators are thinking about when they draw up legislation. And and food stamps comes to about $5 a day. And most people will tell you on food stamps that they don't have enough food stamp money, that by the last week of that month, that's why they're at the food bank, because the dollars don't stretch far enough to even come close to feeding their families. So we're not even talking about adequate dollars in food stamps. But what we are talking about is using the food bank to supplement the food stamps. And now they want to take the food stamps away. It's, It's just it's bad. That's all I can say. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Arnie Arneson of WNHN. You just heard her. Paul Pronovo of the Cape Cod Times and freelance journalist Philip Isle. So back to you, Paul. I was very interested in this piece about tribes putting America first 
And what's interesting about it is that we are just in the middle of, because we're still not done, this struggle in North Dakota around the pipeline. As people may know, President Trump's administration overruled the last don't build and said, yes, you can build. And so the pipeline's being built and the, the protest camp is being broken up in the last few days. But this is on land that the Standing Rock Sioux claims. And so there are big issues around treaty rights that seem to be either ignored or not understood, A. And the question is, how is the Trump administration going to deal with this? So this is, um, this is a very interesting piece that you have here. By the way, I should just say before you begin to speak that there is great interest in the nominee for the Department of the Interior. This is the Trump nominee, Ryan Zinke, who's a Republican congressman from Montana, who, of course, is from big sky country, says uh, he's pledged to restore trust between the agency, the states, and the Indian tribes. Yeah, well, you set up the context very well, of course, we're all, I think, at this point, well familiar with the Standy Rock Sioux and their efforts in North Dakota to block uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, an effort that seemed to succeed in the waning days of the Obama administration. And then perhaps one of the first things the Trump administration did was pull that out from under them and move the pipeline forward. So relationships between this government and Native American tribes seem to get off to not a great start. So frankly, I was surprised and I guess somewhat delighted to see the tact taken by a bunch of tribes from uh, the Cherokee to the Seminoles to closer to home here, the Wampanoag tribe, basically going to the administration and saying, if you want to put America first, why don't you start with the first Americans? And that would be us. And really, I think from a political standpoint, just a fascinating approach. And they've been you know, seeking to reach out to the administration, hoping to meet. And uh, Cedric Cromwell, who is uh, the Mashpee Wampanoag tribal chairman, he put it this way. Tribes are pouring billions and billions of dollars into the U.S. to help make America great again. Of course, hearkening to the words of the Trump campaign. All of these economies we're creating, from resort casinos to malls to businesses, we're job creators. That's a story that's never really told. And I think that's really interesting because they are indeed hoping the Trump administration will get behind their efforts, certainly for the Mashpee Wampanoag, who have been seeking to build a casino now for several years and have seen their efforts start and stop, largely based on actions by the federal government. They're hoping that Donald Trump who has, of course, casino experience, will be able to advance their interests. And uh, so it'll be really interesting to see how this all plays out. And of course, you reference Callie Ryan Zinke, who is from Montana and has pledged to, quote unquote, restore the trust between the agency, the states and Indian tribes. So uh, I guess we'll see where it goes from here. That's pretty interesting, I have to say. Philip, you want to comment? You know, I'm in no position to tell uh, these tribes how they want to deal with the new president. <laughs> I will say you don't have to <laughs> dig very far to see Donald Trump's history with Native Americans. I'm thinking of things like a Washington Post article from last July called Donald Trump's Long History of Clashes with Native Americans. And it begins, Donald Trump claimed that Indian reservations had fallen under mob control. He secretly paid for more than one million in ads that portrayed members of a tribe in upstate New York as cocaine traffickers and career criminals. And he suggested in testimony and in media appearances that dark-skinned Native Americans in Connecticut were faking their ancestry. So there's a lot of history here. Yeah. And Phil Marcello, the author of that article, who I will add is a Providence Journal alum, mentioned, you know, some of the famous testimony that Donald Trump gave where he said they don't look like Indians to me. 
in this Washington Post article, you know, Donald Trump, of course, had an interest in this at the time. He right. had casinos in Atlantic City and these Native American tribes wanted to build their own casinos. And that was a threat to Donald Trump's business. In this Washington Post article, a couple of former Congress people describe that moment of his testimony at the time. One says the air came out of the room. Another said that in 40 years, it was the most irresponsible testimony he had heard in Congress. So I applaud these tribes for wanting to get along with the new president. I think they're making some great points in their own advocacy. I just think, you know, not surprisingly, there's some serious history here. Yeah. Well, and far be it from me to speak for uh, Native American tribes, of course, but I think that they would probably say that they have long stared discrimination, racism in the face and had to just move forward. And I think that, you know, this is probably a brilliant stroke of an approach. And it'll be interesting to see what the response is, because, of course, you're right. That has been the history here with this administration. But I think most Indian tribes could tell you that didn't start and stop here. It's been going on for, well, frankly, since the 1600s. Let me just remind everyone that when Trump was giving that testimony, uh, he was in competition with the casino right. owners. So right now he's not in competition. At least they know they have a sort of a symbiotic relationship. Well, you understand us and we understand you. And now that you're not in competition and now you're the president, maybe we can have a conversation about, you know, why our casinos are so good and why they you know produce jobs. And of course, as you're talking, Phil, all I kept thinking was Senator Pocahontas, Senator Pocahontas. So Donald Trump, he has a he has a long bridge to cross. Uh, by the way, that was a reference to Elizabeth Warren, in case people oh, don't yes, know sorry. that. All right. Well, moving the on. The president's reference. Yes, the pres- yes, president of Trump's Please reference. Not mine. Yes, not, 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 not mine. Send her the email. <laughs> sorry, President Trump's Please. reference. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, oh, moving God. on, Philip Isle. Great excitement about the probability that uh, Norwegian discount airline is going to start offering some mini flights from Green Airport, that's Rhode Island's, Providence, Rhode Island's airport, to five cities in Ireland and Scotland. You're about to make the big green. Ha ha. (laughs) (laughs) So Rhode Islanders like me have long known that Rhode Island is an international destination, Um, but now it's official. um, (laughs) And that coming this summer, there will be apparently 16 weekly flights from our airport in Warwick, uh, which services the Providence area, TF Green, to uh, Dublin, Shannon and Cork, Ireland, Belfast and Northern Ireland and Edinburgh and Scotland. And these are apparently going to be kind of bargain tickets, some as cheap as $65, importantly, not including baggage and meals. Most of them, according to a Providence Journal report, are going to be in the $300 range. But of course, still uh, good. we mentioned still good <laughs> yeah. um, for the governor, who is a jobs, jobs, jobs politician. This is particularly exciting because apparently this airline, Norwegian, plans to base two new planes here, which means 75 Rhode Island based crew members to operate them and potentially a maintenance shop. It's just a, an exciting story. The CEO and president of the Rhode Island Airport Corporation called it a potential game changer for the state. And I think the governor herself said that she was going to take a trip to Scotland on one of these new airlines. And we always like to, to beat out other similarly sized cities. I oh, think stop. Rhode Island beat out. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was going to say I hate you. I was going to say I Yeah, exactly. The, the, the journal article notes that Providence beat out Bradley International Airport in Hartford and Portsmouth International Airport in New Hampshire. Oh. I will say... Because nothing's free, uh, the journal notes that to land the new flights, the Rhode Island Airport Corporation agreed to pay Norwegian its standard incentive of $750,000 for for each new route, the the payments totaling over three years, $3.75 million. 
so this wasn't free, but we got it. So um, I think you can make make some of that back in due time. Oh no, I, yeah. I'm not necessarily commenting on the wisdom of those payments. Just that Norwegian didn't just come here simply because Rhode Island is a great place. I mean, there was more involved. There you go. Well, I think it's great. And, you know, hey, another way to enhance the Irish connection here in the general Boston area, too. I mean, I think there's all kinds of possibilities there. Can I just rain on your parade just a tiny, tiny bit? I don't mean to do this. I don't mean to do this. But just because Portsmouth lost it, I got to do something negative. So I'm looking at an article. The travel press is reporting the Trump slump a devastating drop in tourism to the United States. So understand that we want people to be flying to Ireland and to England and to whatever, but the assumption also is, as you just pointed out, that you know now Rhode Island will be a destination for all these foreign tourists, and there is something that is becoming very recognizable, which they're now calling the Trump slump, and they're seeing a significant drop in tourism to the United States. So Actually, yes, I was thinking I about applaud. Americans going the other way, but but, well, you're, but you, make it a, ways, you make a good point. Yeah, you make a good point. I just point. wanted to let you know. All right. Okay, I'm here uh, to provide. All right. I want to move on to uh, what I just love this story, Paul Pronovo. Love, love, love. And that's the story of Owen that has been chronicled in a documentary, which is one of five nominated for Oscars in the documentary feature category. It's called Life Animated. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about it. I have a clip from the film. So give us a quick intro, and then we'll play a little clip. Okay, sure. So Owen Suskind is a young man who now uh, lives in Hyannis. And his story, if ever there were an inspirational story, it's Owen's. He was a young boy who seemed to be developing normally and uh, suddenly became very withdrawn and was diagnosed with regressive autism and literally lost his voice. The ability to communicate was completely gone and suddenly it was brought back through literally the magic of Disney films. I've been scared my whole life of growing up. Peter Pan doesn't want to grow up because when you grow up you lose all your magical childhood times. My hope is that he is independent enough to be able to grow older on his own. When I look in the mirror, I see a proud autistic man ready to meet a future that is bright and full of wonder. What I love about this story is how it unfolds. Uh, it's a, both a story, a very personal story with this family, the Suskines, and by the way, the father is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, and how they're coping with autism, really, as any family would, and then this unique way that they finally landed on to communicate with their son. But more than that, it goes on to show you where the young man is going to end up, which is where he is now. He's working. Tell us about his life now. It really is an amazing story. And and frankly, so many people have been touched by special needs and, and specifically autism. And, you know, it seems like sometimes there's not much hope for for a life beyond uh, assisted living, essentially. The great concern is when your parents get too old to care for you, what next? And, and Owen is an example of someone who not only was reborn, if you will, through Disney, but also has developed a, a level of independence that is just amazing. And a shout out, as Phil would say, to Life Incorporated here on the Cape. They're, they're an organization that allows folks with special needs to live independently. And of course, they have some support system in place, so they're not completely independent, but they are 
actually living in their own apartments and what have you. They help them get jobs and facilitate that sort of thing. Owen is working, not surprisingly and perfectly, at the Regal Cinemas in Hyannis. So uh, it, it's, it's really, truly a great story. And by the time our listeners hear this conversation, he and his family will be in Hollywood hoping that their name, the name of the director and producer, Roger Ross Williams, gets called. Though I have to say it's a pretty long shot this year because that's a tough, tough category. It's a tough and, category. <laughs> yes, they've, 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 they've done very well in Sundance and others, but an Oscar would be an icing on the cake. Well, the filmmaker also wants people to understand that he actually is focusing on that transformation year where he actually begins to move out. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to hear the story of the past, but this documentary really sort of says, okay, he's now moving from sort of a protected environment to his own. And that really is the celebration that the parents cannot quite believe, that their son really is going to have this sense of independence. And they would not have thought of it when he was three. And now they're looking at that opportunity. And that really is what the arc of history is so beautiful. Well, what's also beautiful, because I just like another good news story, because we're so depressing sometimes on this show. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, there are two Providence chefs among the semifinalists for the Best Chef Northeast in the James Beard Foundation Awards, and they are considered the Oscars of the food world. So this is exciting, right? Absolutely. You know, I, I constantly am bearing bad news from Rhode Island about corruption and dysfunction, <laughs> and I'm super pleased to, Don't to jinx uh, share, share the Don't news jinx that uh, two of Providence's many talented chefs, Ben Sukel from the restaurant Birch and Derek Wagner from Nick's on Broadway, uh, were recently named semifinalists for the James Beard Awards as Best Chef in the, in the Northeast category. I can personally vouch for these two restaurants. Mm. They're two of my favorites. And on top of that, I, I should also add that Providence has so many amazing restaurants. We yes, have Peruvian food. Yeah. We have Cambodian food. We have Mexican food. And it isn't just me. Providence was apparently one of Zagat's 26 hottest food cities of 2016. Mm. And I dug around a little bit and found that in 2012, Travel and Leisure called us the top food city in the U.S. All of which is to Ooh. say, if you want to take a little New England vacation, come on down to Providence. We have, you know, Al Forno is famous. North is one of my favorites. And of course, Birch and Nick's on Broadway, these two now celebrated restaurants, are just excellent. There's a lot of great food to choose from here in Providence. And I just have to say that this is a case where the nomination really does make a difference. You know, you, yes. you, people say yes. it's an honor to be nominated and you go, yeah, yeah, but I didn't win. But this really highlights these folks who are doing not only excellent food, but creative things with food. And it just takes them to another level in their careers and in terms of awareness in the community and the whole nine yards. It's great. And, and I will add that, at least in Ben's case, I'm not sure if Derek went to Johnson and Wales, but it is a testament to our local okay. higher ed huh. scene. We, of course, have Johnson and Wales University here in Providence, which has churned out so many talented chefs, including Emeril, who we all know. Right. Uh, but a lot of these guys and girls stick around and, and do really amazing things here in Rhode Island. All right. Squeezing out at the end here, Paul Pronovo, John F. Kennedy, Stamp commemorates the 100th birthday of the president. There was a big to-do here in Boston this past week celebrating that first day of issue. But you got more going on down the Capeway because there's a whole museum right there in Hyannis celebrating the former president. We do indeed. And uh, on May 29th, it will be President Kennedy's 100th birthday. And as you mentioned, uh, a 1,000 people turned out to the JFK Library in Dorchester uh, this past week to celebrate the unveiling of his commemorative stamp. But here on the Cape, there are going to be events beginning this spring and lasting really all year long. And at the JFK 
uh, Hyannis Museum, the marquee event will be a season-long exhibit called JFK at 100, Life and Legacy. And uh, really, it is expected to be quite good. Um, it's going to tie important themes and moments of his presidency, including the space race, civil rights movement, interna- international relations, and others, and bring it home. Because you know, the Cape truly was the Kennedy uh, homestead, and it's a place where, to this day, the Kennedy family still comes for respite. And uh, and I think that, that John Kennedy's time here, you know, of course, the, the Camelot years, even echoes today, and, and there, of course, are is the museum, as you mentioned. There are tours of the area, and, and people come here just to, to walk the same steps. Uh, he was just down the street from where my office is. He gave his first speech after uh, he was elected at the Armory uh, office, which, which there's been rumors that they might turn that into some sort of Kennedy-related thing, but uh, just fantastic. So you have the exhibit at the museum. Uh, the Cape Symphony will be performing a concert on the eve of his birthday and a series of other events, uh, including uh, Sergei Khrushchev, who is the son of Nikita, who will be wow. coming and speaking in, in July uh, about their relationship. Well, I can't say enough about that museum. I really enjoyed it in its current state, so I can't wait to see what they will do for this special occasion. It's really fabulous. Uh, and can I just remind everyone that what, what did JFK say? He said, someday we're going to land a man on the moon. Mm-hmm. And what made him such a great president is that he funded the dream. He funded the dream. That so I think it's I important in that thing? short spiel he was able to do that. Yes, add one more thing, Phil. I, I was just going to say, uh, you know, following President Trump's tweet about some major news networks being enemies of the American people, there was a clip of JFK from 1962 that made the rounds online and on TV. In it, he says, even though we never like it, even though we wish they didn't write it, even though we disapprove, there still isn't any doubt that we couldn't do the job at all in a free society without a very, very active press. A great way to end this conversation. Thank you so <laughs> much, Philip Hell. Thanks all of you for joining me today. Thank you. Arnie Arneson is the host of WNHN's The Attitude with Arnie Arneson. Paul Protovo is the editor of the Cape Cod Times. And Philip Isle is a freelance journalist in Providence, Rhode Island. Coming up, what's it like to be diagnosed with a disease only a handful of Americans live with? Boston's top doctors are taking the lead in helping to solve the puzzle of these mysterious disorders. That's up next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley.